Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on July 17, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with Cynthia Ritchie Terrell, executive director and founder of Represent Women, an organization dedicated to strengthening our democracy by advancing reforms that break down barriers to ensure more women run for political office, win their elections, serve at the public's interest, and become effective leaders. Represent Women believes that bringing more women into the elected and appointed positions at every level of government will make our democracy more representative of their constituents, including the 50% that are women, reviving bipartisanship and collaboration, improving the deliberative process, encouraging a new style of leadership, and building greater trust in our elected officials. Represent Women conducts research to track representation and assess best practices. It educates political action committees, donors, party leaders, and elected officials about reforms to advance women's representation and leadership. It advocates at the local, state, and federal levels to adopt institutional reforms, and Represent Women forges strategic collaborative partnerships to build a lasting and successful movement for gender parity. Historically, Represent Women started as Representation 2020, a program of the nonpartisan reform group FairVote. The team engaged in research to track the status of women's representation in the U.S. and abroad, understand the underlying reasons women are underrepresented, and find evidence-based solutions to mitigate the problem. This inquiry resulted in a suite of reports, studies, and tracking tools that follow trends in women's representation in the U.S. and internationally. You can find more representation on Represent Women on their website at representwomen.org. Again, that's representwomen.org, all one word, no hyphens, no underscores, representwomen.org. Between board members, staff, and interns, Represent Women has nearly 30 people working directly with the organization. Cynthia Ritchie Terrell is the executive director and founder. She and her husband, Rob Ritchie, helped to found FairVote, a nonpartisan champion of electoral reforms to give voters greater choice, a stronger voice, and a truly representative democracy. Cynthia has worked on projects related to women's representation and voting system reform in the United States and abroad. Prior to her work on Fair Vote and Represent Women, she worked extensively on political campaigns as campaign manager and field director for campaigns for U.S. President, U.S. House, and U.S. Senate, for governor and for state and citywide initiative efforts, including a state equal rights amendment and a city campaign for fair representation voting. Cynthia has been published in numerous journals, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Hill, the Refinery Refinery 29, the Nation, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the American Prospect, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Baltimore Sun, and the Christian Science Monitor. Additionally, she has appeared on C-SPAN's Washington Journal, and has participated in numerous radio shows and panel discussions on the topics of electoral reform and structural strategies to elect more women. And she's here today to talk with us. Cynthia Terrell, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to be with you. Well, you know, it's, it's, I find it interesting that um, you were involved in founding uh, Fair Vote. Uh, in prior podcasts, we've talked with several representatives from Fair Vote, uh, including Drew Penrose, uh, David Daly, and the president of Fair Vote Virginia, Elizabeth Melson. So I'm excited to have you here today. Yeah, well, thank you. Likewise. So um, I'd like to chat a little bit about the mission of Represent Women. Um, 
So the web page describes the mission statement like this, to strengthen our democracy by advancing reforms that break down barriers to ensure more women can run, win, serve, and lead. So the premise here is that democracy will become a better democracy with more women involved. Now, I'm certainly not going to argue that point because I actually agree with it, but uh, could you explain the motivation behind that premise? Sure. I, I think that's a, it's a very, it's a good place to start. And it's, it's sort of a more complicated question than one might think initially. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of wisdom in some of the early founders um, thoughts, including John Adams, who had the, the quote that I use a lot about the, um, the, House of Representatives should be a portrait of the people in miniature. And of course, there were some um, big oversights that the founders had uh, leaving out significant uh, demographic groups from the Constitution. I think their, their, um, their vision of government and representative democracy in the United States was one made up of the people it served. And so um, from that vantage point, I think we should uh, consider the need to have everybody represented in democracy um, mm -hmm. in order for it to, to function well and to carry out its duties. And that means, you know, Republicans in Manhattan and Democrats in Oklahoma and um, far left people and far right people and people in the military and just people all over the spectrum should have a voice in the government um, that obviously has such a big impact on their lives. Mm -hmm. I also think there are some specific um, policy uh, um, questions, which um, beg the need to have different perspectives, um, whether that's discussions around um, family leave policies or childcare, or um, even scheduling of the sessions themselves. When you don't have all the voices in the room trying to figure out what the best policies are, um, then often the policies don't really include everybody. And so I think one of the goals of our uh, organization is is to um, get the you know get the best and the brightest of America um, elected to office, and that includes women, it includes people of color, it includes people from all over the, the geographic spectrum, um, to really help come together to solve our nation's problems. And I think that's maybe the most um, uh, authentic, uh, motivating. Um, uh, mm -hmm argument that we have as an organization that we just can't help to, we can't hope to really uh, solve our problems unless we have everybody working together to do so. I think additionally, there's, um, there's some very interesting data from places like the Center for Effective uh, Lawmaking, Craig Barden and others, um, who are thinking now about the impact of women legislators and the fact that um, women uh, statistically are more likely to uh, endorse each other's legislation across party lines and work together uh, formally in women's caucuses and informally uh, to uh, sort out policy and figure out ways of moving forward legislatively. So I, we already have data that that is happening in the United States in state legislative settings, and also to a certain extent in the US Congress where there've been some great uh, anecdotal stories about uh, the women coming together, the Women's Caucus and the Senate coming together. I think they've been coming together since Barbara Mikulski started gathering them in the early uh, 1990s um, regularly every month uh, to discuss policy and, uh, well, we don't know what they discuss because no one's mm -hmm. invited to attend with them. But um, sure enough, there have been some uh, good overtures from women on the left and the right to work together. And now we see 
with the COVID crisis internationally, a number of the countries that, um, or a number of the women, uh, excuse me, the world leaders who were really um, being heralded as at having a particularly good response to the COVID crisis happened to be women, um, whether it's uh, prime ministers in uh, New Zealand or Germany or Iceland or Finland or Denmark. Um, uh, many of those women uh, were seen as really bringing together a good team, asking the good questions, um, recognizing that they didn't know a lot of information, so listening to the advisors and really creating um, good systems to deal with uh, the COVID crisis. So that's been the most recent uh, set of data, I think, that we're now looking at. And um, so that's been a really interesting uh, uh, conversation to see unfolding. Yeah, that's very interesting because, you know, I've um, I did a little bit of research myself on, on statistics and I was going to ask you a question further on down the line, but it seems to be more appropriate right now. Um, women are involved in in both parties, uh, the, the big parties in the U.S., of course, are Republicans and Democrats. I personally would like to see more parties, but that's beside the point. Um mm -hmm. There seems to be, if you look at the, just looking at the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, there seems to be um, more women skewed uh, on, well, first of all, the Senate is only 26 women. There's not, you know, not the 50 percent, which I, I would think would be ideal. Um, and the House representatives, it's even less than that. It's like 23 percent. But given that, um, the spread across party lines seems to be heavily uh, skewed toward the Democrats versus the Republicans. And I don't want to, you know, jump into like, you know, us versus them or that, that sort of that sort of talk. But do you have any, um, I, I believe it's it's good that women are representatives are reaching across the aisle and working with each other. But there seems to be um, a disparity uh, among the different parties. Is there any reason for that that you can think of? I think there's there there are a number of different um uh, ways into that conversation. Of course, that, that wasn't always the case. Uh, in fact, suffragists themselves, these women we've um, heard so much talk about um, in during this suffrage centennial year, mm -hmm. uh, were almost entirely Republicans. Many of my Quaker ancestors, for example, who were women's rights advocates, they, they were all Republicans. Mm -hmm. um, and that really was true um, from the, you know, the, the 1860s on through the, the 1930s, really. Um, and Republican women served in Congress in equal numbers uh, to Democratic women. In fact, Jeanette Rankin, who was first elected from Montana in 1916, was a Republican woman elected to a multi-seat district. Maybe we can get a little bit into district design mm -hmm. later in the, the show. Um, and the Democrats who ran the state of Montana uh, back then uh, quickly recognized that the best way to get her from winning election again was to create single seat districts. So during her term in, uh, in Congress, her, her first term in Congress, they switched to single seat districts. And so uh, she wasn't able to win again. Um, so then we Republican women. So Jeanette Rankin was the first Republican from Montana. She was elected in, in 1916. For uh, really from the 1920s up until the 1980s, uh, Republican women and Democratic women uh, were largely um, had the same representation. And mm -hmm. for a number of years, Republican women actually uh, had had more representation in the House of Representatives and the Senate. So um, I think the current reality just doesn't isn't rooted in some history. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's almost the opposite of, of the historical um, uh, representation. And then in the 1980s, things began to change. 
Um, we saw the rise of, of a more um, uh, a, a Christian movement, evangelical Christian movement, which pushed the Republican Party uh, to the right on certain core issues. Mm -hmm. uh, the Republican Party members uh, and in the platform had always been pro-Equal Rights Amendment, for example, and what one now would consider liberal on women's uh, related issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was in the, in the 1980s that the ERA was taken out of the Republican Party's platform. And, uh, and, uh, and and the the party itself uh, became more conservative in many respects. And in the late '80s, uh, Emily's List formed, which was a uh, is a of course leading uh, pack on the Democratic side, which really sought to provide uh, funding for for Democratic women candidates, pro-choice Democratic women candidates. And so that really um, enabled more Democratic women to get elected. And really, no group was founded on the right. Um, in those early years to provide Republican women with that same kind of support. So fast forward now um, through the, uh, the early 2000s, we've seen a, um, a sort of a gradual decline in the number of Republican women serving in part, I think, because of the difficulties with our winner take all voting system and the difficulty of, of women getting through the primary system um, as you know, um, mm. perhaps we can talk about this more. Incumbents tend to win re-election in the United States uh, Congress at a, quite a high rate, so it's very hard to break into into um, to office. And um, if you don't have the support from gatekeepers, funders, party leaders, etc., it's particularly hard to break in. And so I think that's been hard for Republican women. Um, the 2018 election was a particular blow for Republican women where um, they they lost um, even more ground in terms of representation. And now some real um, stalwart uh, Republican women, members of Congress are retiring. Uh, people who were real champions for Republican women's representation, like Susan Brooks from Indiana and Ileana Ross Lettinen from Florida and others um, are no longer uh, going to be in the House. And so we have a situation now where um, women's representation in the House and Senate is uh, GOP uh, representation is really um, at a lull, at a low right now. But on the hopeful side, there are some um, younger uh, women, members of Congress, Elise Stefanik, um, and some others who are really working to provide uh, Republican women the same kind of support uh, that Democratic have, women have had from Emily's List and an array of other PACs that have supported their candidacies. And so I think uh, the, the the new PAC, EPAC, that Lee Stefanik has founded, along with some of the groups that have um, just really uh, gotten uh, going in the last few years to organize uh, for Republican women's representation, I think we may see some some change, um, some increase for Republican women, but we won't see enough of an increase until we make some serious changes in our voting and electoral system. Yeah, yeah. We could definitely talk a lot about <clears throat> multi-seat districts and primary system and gerrymandering and so on, which I think it holds back a lot of people, not just women, but mm -hmm. a lot of people from, uh, exactly. from getting involved. Yes. So given that uh, the situation, and, and it, your answer sounds very hopeful, by the way, so that, that I, I, I'm with you on that. Um, have you identified individuals in office who are not women that have a, a good track record of abdicating for women? Oh yes, I think there 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 are plenty on both the Democratic and the Republican side. 
um, certainly at the state legislative level, uh, that's true, and in Congress as well. Okay, good. And um, so let's get into um, actual, the actual process of, of running, campaigning for office. And we, we, we know it's very arduous. I personally know it's very arduous because uh, I've talked to a number of people who are campaigning for office, and some people have actually made it into office, and uh, they pretty much scare me away from even trying it, honestly. It's, uh-huh. it's a very arduous process. And uh, so, you know, if you're, if you're part of this, um, if you're part of the expression, uh, old white male, um, you have, it, it's a difficult process either way, right? But there are additional obstacles that women must clear. Uh, when campaigning, you know, besides the usual ones. So uh, if we could focus on that, what, what additional obstacles do you see? What, what comes to your mind when, I, when, when you think about women running for office? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think stepping back to the, uh, you know, the big macro level out there, uh, in some ways, the, the biggest um, impediment is this, you know, tens of thousands of years of um, built up second class citizenship that women face. Just, mm-hmm. it's really been a long time that women have had less power um, in many cultures across many societies, not all of course, mm-hmm. but uh, for religious reasons, for biological reasons, for um, just really a lot of different, um, a lot of different um, forces have combined sure. uh, to sap women of power. So. If you, you got to look at it from that perspective and it's and that that long legacy of discrimination that's built up over time can't be undone by women simply, you know, smiling forcefully and cheerfully and putting their best face on and, you know, trying to push mm-hmm. forward through the mass. You know, that just isn't going to happen. Um, getting down more to 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 more contemporary uh, obstacles that women face. There's of course been a lot of discussion of the role that the media plays uh, when women are running. And I see this as changing, uh, but it's true that women candidates, of course, when they run are asked about like, who's taking care of your children? And are you worried that they're not getting their homework done or who's making supper? When of course, when men run, uh, at least I've never heard a man be asked, oh, I see you have five children. Are you concerned? You know. Who's taking mm-hmm. them to the orthodontist? Uh, you know, so the the discrepancies in the way male and female candidates are treated in the media, um, I think, definitely is a is a barrier for women just to um, position themselves as um, as the kinds of leaders people perceive they need. But I see that as changing. Yeah. Um, another barrier is money. Uh, not only does it take a lot to run for office now, um, but it it's it's people have to rely on the networks they have to raise the money. And that's why groups like Emily's List and others that have come together uh, to help raise money for women uh, candidates have had such an impact because the uh, the hard work of contacting potential donors is done by these entities. And that really has helped um, particularly women on the Democratic side, as I said before. Mm-hmm. One of the perceptions around money is that um, it's harder for women to raise the money. And the data actually shows that uh, male and female incumbents uh, are able to raise the same amount because PACs and donors tend to give to incumbents, whether they're women or men. Mm-hmm. But it's it's particularly hard for women who are challengers to raise the money they need to run. Um, and it's particularly hard 
uh, to, to break into the, the um, conversation with political action committees, again, who don't, who are, who are somewhat risk averse. And so if you're, if you're running for an open seat race or as a challenger, um, it's harder to get the kind of institutional support from PACs uh, that you that women really need to to be able to um, run strong viable campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, so the media and the money, um, I think, are both uh, big barriers to women uh, being able to run. And then a third element is um, the fact that that uh, that gatekeepers, people who are looking for people to run, um, tend to look at the legislatures to see who looks like they're the leaders in the legislature. And then they go and they look for people that look like those people. So as you say, Mm. um, men have traditionally been the largest component of legislative bodies. And so people who are recruiting people to run have mostly recruited men. But that's the kind of thing that really can change. And what we see happening in the 80 or so countries that rank above the United States in women's representation is that parties um, have taken a much more active role in recruiting women to run. For example, the Labour Party in the UK has set a, a, a threshold, a, a target, a quota uh, for the percentage of women they're going to recruit to run. And of course now um, uh, Macron in, in France had his party on Marche uh, have complete gender parity in the candidates they ran. And that can happen in both uh, a party list proportional system, but also really any party can uh, decide to, to, to make a commitment uh, to recruit more women to run for office. And, and once, you, once you get the gatekeepers, you know, the institutions recruiting women to run at the same rate that they recruit men, I think that'll help to eliminate uh, that barrier of, of women not having the support from the political institutions, which is really probably one of the biggest barriers. I think there's there's quite a bit of focus in this country now on um, preparing individual women to run, but what the the data shows us from other countries um, and from a growing number of jurisdictions in the United States that these kinds of uh, systems changes, uh, like the gender targets and the PAC targets for PACs to give more money uh, to women and some of the voting system changes that we can talk about in a little bit, those are the kinds of things that have the potential uh, to accelerate the, um, the pace of progress toward gender parity um, and to make it enduring, which I think is, is important. I think we all are familiar with the, the pendulum swings in US politics. When one party gets in office, you know, uh, if, a, if a Democrat wins the presidency in 2020, Republicans will probably pick up seats in the House in 2022. That's just the way that it always seems to work. And so right. if, if Republicans pick up a lot of seats in 2022 and they don't recruit women to run, run for those seats, then there'll be fewer women who are winning. Um, and that's just the way that it is when we focus just on on preparing individuals. So hmm. the the you know, my uh, my task for my organization is to really focus on preparing the institutions for women to be able to run effectively. Yeah, that's, that's good. So it, it, you talk about a lot about PACs. Um, does Represent Women work directly with any PACs on this or um, to uh, encourage them? Yes, mm-hmm. we have. We have not, our, we aspire to work more closely with PACs and we just completed this research um, that I think I alluded to that looks at PAC and donor support for women candidates in the 2018 election cycle. And as part of that, we, 
we looked at disparities in giving by PACs and donors um, and found some of the data that I just suggested was true that incumbents get roughly the same amount of money, but challengers mm -hmm. uh, get less money from PACs. But we also, um, through that process, uh, created a set of infographics um, so that PACs, uh, particularly let's say tech sector PACs, could see how they were doing compared to one another. Uh, if you look at Amazon and Google and Twitter and Facebook, um, and we're hoping to use that uh, public information, you know, who's on their board, how much are they giving to women candidates, uh, to help them set targets uh, and become agents of change to actually say, we realize, you know, on average, we're giving about a quarter of our money or less to women candidates, and we pledge to mm -hmm. increase the amount that we give to women candidates every election cycle, you know, until we reach parity in our giving. That's our dream. That hasn't yet happened yet, mm -hmm. but uh, we intend to, to keep plugging away at that at that project. Well, it's a worthy dream. I think, you know, a, a lot of times um, people will not necessarily be aware of how you know, their giving is is being dispersed or who they're giving to, you know, you don't, you know, sometimes, sometimes you just don't think twice, right? I'm going to give to the Republican party. Or I'm going to give to the Democratic party. But, you know, I think you need to tie some strings to that and say, okay, wait a minute. Now that we're aware that there are, um, that we want to promote more women for office, then um, once they become aware of that and they see the statistics, um, yeah, I think they could have a very positive effect. Yes. And I, I actually think for, for both parties, this is true, but maybe perhaps more so for the Republican Party, that it becomes actually a comparative advantage. Republican, the Republican Party now is somewhat scrambling to make sure they're appealing to the to, to majority of voters and, and women comprise, of course, half or more of the voting population. So mm -hmm. I think it's, it's in the Republican Party's interest to run good, strong women candidates if they want to win elections. Yeah, I think uh, the news I've been hearing recently is that they're uh, in a little bit of trouble on that front currently. Yes, so yeah. far. Yes, that seems to be the case. So just to follow up a little bit, um, you talk about you know, encouraging women to run for office. Um, how do you how do you locate um, good candidates? I mean, being such an arduous process, and frankly, it's quite intimidating to run for office, right? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta be able to basically manage your entire campaign and get people to volunteer to knock on doors for you and do things like that. I mean, that's that's a very yeah, yeah. you have to really commit to it. So, how do you how do you uh, encourage women to run for office, and what can you do to help well, them overcome their yeah, hesitations? Fortunately, fortunately, we are, uh, represent women as part of a coalition called Reflect Us, which is a coalition of nonpartisan women's representation organizations. Uh, there are nine of us who are part of the group, and the other eight uh, really focus on exactly what you just said, figuring out how to provide the resources to um, women candidates that they need uh, to run for office. And so they uh, they provide information on, um, on running the campaign, on raising money, on the filing deadlines, on policy and um, a number of other things. And the, you know, the groups who are doing that already are groups like Running Start and She Should Run and Vote Run Lead. And um, uh, there's some groups that focus particularly on uh, recruiting Latinas to run, Latinas represent. Uh, Higher Heights is really focused on encouraging African-American women to run. Um, and there's some new groups on the um, right, uh, ViewPack, for example, um, a good ally, Julie Conway, is really focused on recruiting uh, Republican women to run for Congress and then providing the support that they need to be able to run competitive campaigns. Okay. So that I, I'll, I will, I'm happy to report there are lots of organizations 
um, who are already doing that. And then um, the, the groups I just mentioned are all national organizations, but they're also state groups um, that uh, that seem to be springing up every day on Twitter uh, that are doing, uh, that work either in regions or in states. Um, that's quite impressive and um, really trying to provide women with the resources they need to be successful. Okay, good. So um, you, in your past uh, comments here, I want to I uh, jump back to something. You, you talked a lot about statistics and I just perusing your website, looking at the um, the, uh, the the team, the website team, a lot of interns are there doing uh, peer research, uh, which is um, interesting. So um, obviously you're compiling a lot of statistics. And um, do you have any more interesting things to, to share with us regarding those? You already quoted quite a bit, but are there other uh, areas you'd like to uh, emphasize, such as? Yeah, um, we do. We have, um, I'll say at the outset that, our um, research really tries to look anywhere where there are decisions being made or where there's, excuse me, political power. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind, those are the things that we want to understand better. So that's what drives our research into these different areas. And so some of the um, research that we're doing that is less comprehensive, but we feel is very important um, is looking at women in judicial positions. We, I don't think that there's another big group that is doing that, but mm. we feel like uh, women in judicial positions is an important um, thing to pay attention to and track. There have been some studies on the, the lack of women prosecutors and DAs, and just that seems like a fascinating area. We, we don't really have the capacity to do that in a comprehensive way, mm -hmm. but we're looking at that. Um, we're, we're just out today, or actually, the, I just read the draft of our work on tribal women's representation or women's representation in tribal nations, I should say. I think that's awfully important because even though they live technically in tribal nations, they're within our U.S. Um, borders, and many of those women, of course, are voting um, and, and becoming active in politics in their, in their communities and at the state level. Uh, so we look at tribal women's representation. We're um, launching a new project this summer to look at incarcerated women and their ability to vote and um, their success running for office. There's not that much research about that. So we're trying to see what we can find and put that together. Um, and then we are looking at uh, rules that parties use. We have a big project um, that will be released in a few weeks on all the gender balance rules that the, both the Republican and the Democratic Party use for their precinct delegates, uh, I mean, excuse me, precinct chairs, uh, state party committees and convention delegates. And it's just fascinating to me that, uh, that every position in the Democratic Party has a gender balance rule, uh, meaning there have to be 50% women and 50% men. Hmm. And many Republican uh, states parties have passed similar language. And this has been true for uh, 40 or 50 years. So it's mm. not a new thing. Um, so we have a report coming out on that. Then we also, we have a PAC report that I mentioned. Um, we're doing quite a bit around the suffrage centennial, which is, uh, uh, this summer, of course, um, and supporting a group that is, uh, putting together a big conference on that. So it's actually next week called Seneca Falls Revisited. If anybody who's listening is interested in tuning in to that, they can go to crewwomen.com to look for a way to, to, look at the live stream. Then um, we have these three major additional areas where we're doing substantial reports. And one is um, on international women's representation where we've put together a, a, a massive spreadsheet that looks at 
the representation of women in every country in the world, in both the upper and the lower house, the type of voting system used in those countries, or I mean, in those parliaments, mm -hmm. um, the type of quota used, uh, the existence of a, a woman head of state, the gender balance um, of the cabinets in those um, in those nations, and then the historic trend. So we're looking back uh, for several decades, what does it look like since the, the 1990s? And I'll say one of those stats that should be, um, should sober people up about women's representation in the United States is that uh, 20 years ago, the United States ranked 60th for women's representation worldwide. And now we rank 80th, or oh, actually we rank about 84th or 80, it fluctuates, wow. but we're in the early 80s. So that's moving in the wrong direction. The, yeah, brouhaha about accomplishments and midterm elections in 2018 and year of the women. Uh, other countries are simply doing a better job because they're focused on changing institutions and recruitment norms, and they have different voting systems. And the United States is just falling farther, farther and farther behind. So, we've got a lot of we've got a great dashboard on our website on international women's representation and all those different filters that I just described. And then we also have it by continent as well, so you can look at Africa and South America and see the amazing progress. Uh, and uh, it's just it's very impressive and. I have to say, it's an interesting thing. A lot of those countries are really motivated by the UN um, Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, sustainable Development Goal number five is on women's representation. And those countries are <clears throat> busily trying to get themselves uh, to meet those targets. And so it's just, it's a good lesson for us on the global scale uh, about setting a target and providing parliamentarians with the tools they need to reach that. Um, and I'm eager to figure out how to build that same um, uh, perspective mm -hmm. on rules and systems change in the United States. So that's the international work. We've also created something called the Gender Parity Index a few years ago to track women's representation in every state. And we look at the local, state, a legislative, statewide, executive, and federal level combined. And then we give every state a grade. You'll see that on our website uh, or on our research page now. It's under Gender Parity Index. And that's been a useful tool because there's very little um, analysis in this country of, of women's representation at the local level and trying to figure out sort of a snapshot of each state. Like, you know, how's Missouri doing? How's Wyoming doing? How's Maryland doing yeah. overall? Um, so that's been a good project. And then Perhaps the biggest thing we've done um, that's going to be out next week is this big report on the uh, election outcomes for women and people of color in jurisdictions with ranked choice voting, mm -hmm. where we uh, look at the history of ranked choice voting um, in the United States over the last 100 years. And then we look at the use of ranked choice voting in the last 20 years. And we look at uh, the percentage of women and people of color getting elected in the jurisdictions with ranked choice voting. And then we provide some analysis as to why um, why it is that these uh, that these jurisdictions with ranked choice voting are electing about twice as many women to office, um, both for executive races like mayor, and then for at the city council level as well. That's that's a really interesting topic. I wanted to move on to that topic too. By the way, I was you're stealing all of my questions on me because I was going to ask you about the gender parity index report. That's a very fascinating report, and it sits on the website uh, representwomen.org. No dashes, no hyphens. Um, yeah, so ranked choice voting uh, is one of the uh, vehicles that can certainly be used to help equal the playing field. We also mentioned earlier uh, about multi-seat districts. Um, 
And that is fascinating to me because, you know, I grew up thinking, well, you know, one district, one representative, right? But that's not necessarily the case. Um, and like the state of Washington, we, we talked to um, um, a representative or a person running for represent, representative in the state of Washington. They actually have uh, multi-winner uh, districts within the district. state. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, can we talk a little bit more about that, how that uh, how that opens up the playing field a little bit more, not only for yeah, women, sure. but for everybody in general, really? Yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating topic because I think that people um, tend to think of the way things are today as the way they've always been. And of course, that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, there's very little in the U.S. Constitution that says anything about, well, it doesn't mention political parties or district composition or really anything. It just says House elections shall be, House members shall be elected every two years, um, but it could be really any two years. And in fact, in the first uh, decades of um, our country, states were having elections uh, you know, on, on at random intervals. Hmm. Um, and states were using at-large districts or multi-seat districts to send their representatives uh, to the Capitol. Um, it was in the early 1800s that, that uh, people moved towards single winter districts um, to for, for various reasons that I won't get into. But over the, the you know, 100 or so years between 1850 and 1950, many states used multi-seat districts for members of Congress. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's no coincidence that a number of Republican women were elected from plain states like Jeanette Rankin from a multi-seat district during that time. Um, there's a problem when you just have a multi-seat district or an at-large district with a winner-take-all system because it can meet, lead to a, a majority, like a, a racial majority of, of white people in the South, for example, winning all the seats without getting a, a true majority. And so mm -hmm. um, in 1967, as a result of the Voting Rights Act, and, and I think very welcome consciousness about the problems of winner-take-all multi-seat districts, um, the this there was a statute passed uh that mandated single winner districts for all house races interestingly uh, many states uh still use um multi-seat districts including um uh, 10 uh and maryland is one of them maryland west virginia and new hampshire all elect um, three or more uh, legislators per district. And that uh, in those districts, it's great to have that data, uh, women are, are, are uh, twice as likely to get elected uh, to a seat and, um, and people of color are doing quite well in those elections, at least in Maryland as well. Mm -hmm. The real promise I think comes when you combine multi-seat districts with ranked choice voting. And there's a bill in Congress, HR 4000, introduced by Don Byer from Virginia, uh, that does just that, combines multi-seat districts with ranked choice voting, because then you see a number of things happening. Picture that you're electing three people per geographic area, or maybe five people for, per geographic area. All of a sudden, not only do you get uh, partisan fairness, you'll have moderate Republicans elected from Manhattan, and conservative Democrats selected from Oklahoma. Um, but you also uh, are enabling multiple constituencies of color to elect, to get to have representation. And um, right now, uh, when you have a single winner district, um, it's often the, uh, you know, the, the 
whatever the dominant dis- race is in that district. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's really not fair to the other racial minorities if they want to elect candidates of choice. So all of a sudden, say in Georgia, you'd have Latinos and African-Americans and, and maybe not Vietnamese Americans, but Vietnamese Americans would be an important voting block to other candidates who are running who, mm-hmm. would, who would seek their support. And then given the data I've already discussed about ranked choice voting in multi-seat districts uh, for women, uh, when you combine those two things at the federal level, all of a sudden we'd see a huge increase in the number of women in the U.S. House of Representatives. And that seems like a really exciting reform that probably a lot of people would say, ah, oh, that, that, oh, that seems ambitious. Yeah. But I think that the times really call for ambitious uh, change. And I think uh, in this, the current system really isn't working for anybody. Um, and so changing changing the system, changing the incentives for how legislators work together on behalf of their constituents, um, there's so many good outcomes that would result from uh, a different way of, uh, of designing the districts and running the elections of the ranked choice voting that we see it really as, as gaining traction. And in fact, there was just a, the Academy of Arts and Sciences um, had a, a big team of academics and scholars come together to consider all of the reforms that were possible and which ones uh, were really held the most promise. Mm-hmm. And in a, a report that just came out two weeks ago called Our Common Purpose, um, they endorse both multi-seat districts and ranked choice voting and the combination of those known as fair representation voting um, as their main plank for electoral reform and democracy. So we're pretty excited to see the, the growing interest in that. And um, there are a couple more bills for ranked choice voting in Congress introduced by Jamie Raskin, uh, the Ranked Choice Voting Act, uh, H.R. 4464, and also a bill introduced in the Senate by Michael Bennett um, to to to. Uh, provide funding for jurisdictions that are moving toward ranked choice voting. So we see some really promising conversations happening about this mm-hmm. um, across the partisan spectrum. And uh, what the role of my my work is to really uh, bring the women's community into that conversation and um, broaden the work to uh, think about how to change these systems, how to help them evolve so that women stand a better chance at, at winning and, and staying in office. Yeah. Well, the one the one thing we didn't talk about yet was gerrymandering, but, you know, multi-seat districts um, also, I think, is an effective tool somewhat against, uh, against gerrymandering. Absolutely. And- yeah. Best way to eliminate gerrymandering is to make the district lines not matter. Yeah. I mean, the reason it matters now who draws them is that they determine the representation of that district for, you know, a decade at mm-hmm. least, if not more, um, based on how those lines are drawn. But if all of a sudden those lines don't really impact who gets elected, uh, that's a beautiful thing, yeah. I would say. Yeah. And uh, it, it really puts the decision of representation into the hands of the voters just where it should be. And it means that um, the, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party uh, could run different kinds of candidates um, that may be truer to the communities they serve right. without feeling like they've got to run to the left or to the right. And that it might mean um, that there would be places in the country uh, where third and fourth and fifth parties, but I don't like to call them that because that seems like more of a hierarchy, but there, there are plenty of people who, who aren't registering for one of the major parties, and uh, those people, um, those voters really deserve a voice um, uh, as well. So yeah. I think, you know, 
getting rid of gerrymandering is um, is obviously a real goal. And there's a lot of excitement around that. And the nice thing about the Fair Representation Act is just in one fell piece of legislation, it would end the practice. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, you talked about, you know, uh, parties having to run to the left or to the right, you know, and in, um, in previous podcasts, we talked about this phenomenon. And it usually, it, I think it, it what's coming obvious to me in your ways is this is a result of our primary system. And so there's this thing called, you know, top two primaries that uh, that some states are starting to run right now where um, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, or if you're with the Alliance Party or the Green Party or the Libertarians, um, the top two people will um, actually come out of the primary, and they could, they could be both Republicans, for example. But uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the top two primary uh, type of approach. I have, and I have to say, and maybe this is one of those times when I'll say this is my personal opinion, but I'm not really a big fan of it in that it, mm-hmm. I think it's a— kind of a blunt instrument um, for this tender democracy that we have. And um, because of the top two rules, it's often uh, women and candidates of color uh, who are told to wait their turn. Or if you've got too many uh, Democratic women running, for example, they may split the vote in a top two scenario. And the top two voters, uh, uh, vote getters could be Republicans from an overwhelmingly Democratic district. And Mm I think the the danger of that is real, and the math of it is clear. You know, if you've got um, two Republicans running and and five Democrats running, Democratic voters are going to divide up all their support among the Democratic candidates. And even if the the two Republicans emerge, that does as victors, that doesn't mean that they've got the support of the majority. So I'm a big fan of hmm. of letting the voters make that decision and giving voters more choices and not limiting the voters' choices, I guess, so much. And I think um, a ranked choice voting election is just a more sophisticated uh, uh, way to give voters power and not to limit choices. Got it. Good. Okay, I think, uh, like I said, uh, you've been you've been uh, answering all the questions before I can even ask them. This is really <laughs> fascinating conversation for me because um, I, I just keep uh, thinking of things to ask you, and then next thing I know, you're answering them already. This is great. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I, uh, I we're kind of getting up toward the end of our conversation here, but I would like to give you uh, an opportunity to uh, what I would do, what I would call the call to action portion of the interview, where you get to talk about how people can get involved in the Represent Women organization and what they can do, and um, and you know where the website is and so on. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for this great conversation. Um, as you've you've been very gracious in mentioning the website, I'll mention it again, representwomen.org, all one word. You can also look for us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, and we've got a Medium account with a lot of blogs that are um, there, particularly on the, the suffrage uh, centennial, um, which we're in right now. Uh, we're on LinkedIn and um, so forth, Facebook. So please follow us there. Uh, we'd welcome, welcome uh, your engagement at that level. And then in terms of our Take Action tab, actually, that's one part of the website we are just um, redesigning right now, but um, mm-hmm. there's some resources there. We're going to be adding some slideshows that people can use to present to their group. 
their church group or Ligman voters group or whatever it is, or their family. Uh, there's a fun tool called Rank It, which is a ranked choice voting tool that people can use to select you know, the choice of pie at Thanksgiving or select anything they want just to get used to the idea of using ranked choice voting. Uh, there's also uh, a place or there will be a place shortly on the website to look for um, the legislation to support at the federal level. Then we, we have a map that's part of the ranked choice voting report that I mentioned that will um, provide a direction for people in states to look uh, to where the, the state group is that's organizing a ranked choice voting in the state. Um, and then there's always the good old fashioned, um, we welcome donations. We are, a, uh, I would say, of of small nonprofits, we're a very small nonprofit. Even though we've got a lot of um, a lot of people committed to helping us work on a voluntary basis, as you mentioned, interns and board members, we'd love to hire more staff so we can uh, help to visualize this data more effectively and share it with our allies and the other practitioners and elected officials who would benefit from seeing it. So, um, to, to that end, we always welcome donations. But um, I hope that people will check out the. The website and uh, and and help us take action on the legislation. Follow us on social media, and I also have a a, a blog on um, women's representation called Weekend Reading on Women's Representation that comes out every Friday. And there's a button on our website under the Take Action uh, 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 menu uh, where you can sign up for that listserv if you're interested in joining it. Um, and you can also look for it on Ms. Magazine. For the last few months, it's also been running every week on Ms. Magazine. So you're really, um, really getting the word out there then. <laughs> yeah. And people can, and if they're, if they want to inquire about any of the things that I've mentioned on this show, uh, please uh, use the info at representwomen.org uh, to reach somebody. And we will be glad to answer your questions and hear your suggestions. Wonderful. Great. Okay. We've been talking with Cynthia Ritchie Terrell, the executive director and founder of Represent Women, an organization dedicated to strengthening our democracy by advancing reforms that break down barriers to ensure more women can run, win, serve, and lead. Cynthia, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you very much. It's been really fun. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week will bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Or just Google the Alliance Party After Dark and you'll just find it all over the place. Also, keep in mind that the podcast now has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.